We turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously, that is, to accomplish great things, because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible, that is, wonderful things, off things fill us with awe. Thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, no daughter... And consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers, that is, in the place of thy fathers, shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall thy people praise thee forever and ever. Our text is the whole of the chapter, but because of the length, you understand we will just focus on various aspects of the chapter. Psalm 45. Beloved, and I use that word purposely, of course. We have before us a text that has to do with the great bridegroom. Whom does he love? For whose sake was he sent into the world by his father? For a church, which is to say, for a bride chosen for him from before the foundations of the world. And you as a small congregation are a small manifestation of that bride. And your Lord Christ in his name would have me address you as his Beloved, as I stated in the congregational prayer, there can be no higher honor granted to a human being and a sinful human being at that than to be called the beloved of how, does verse 6 put it, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. That is referring to Jesus really as the Son of God, as Hebrews 1 will make plain. This is a fitting psalm for 
to mark, I would say, the re great redemptive event of the ascension. In fact, I preached this sermon in text a few months ago at our Kalamazoo congregation when the Reformed church world, at least part of it, marked the great redemptive event of the ascension. But of course, this is a passage that is highly appropriate for any given Lord's Day to reflect upon the beauty and the majesty of this ascended Lord Jesus, who is our great bridegroom. Some 2,000 years, of course, 2000 years ago, of course, he ascended up on high. And when he ascended up on high, he went forth conquering and to conquer with his sword upon his thigh and then in his right hand as well upon a great white steed, as it were. I lift that figure, as you must know, from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is the chapter in which the Lamb of God, that is the Lion of Judah's tribe who appears as the Lamb of God, lays hold upon the seven-sealed book because he has obtained the right. Who is worthy to open the seven-sealed book? And there was none found in heaven who was worthy except, here's the Lion of Judah's tribe. Worthy is the Lamb. And on the basis of his blood and redemptive work, he is given control of the whole of New Testament history. And the opening of the seven-sealed book is in figurative ways the opening of the whole of New Testament history, which has to do with the salvation of the New Testament church chosen from every nation, tribe, and tongue, of whom we, of course, you are a small representation. Not only the church universal now, but of all ages. And the Lamb opens one of the seals, we read, the noise of thunder. Come and see. And I saw, and this is the opening of the first seal, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's the gospel going forth as directed by the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the great bridegroom of the church. What's the purpose of New Testament history? To save a people that's been given unto him from the nation's tribe and tongue. That's why he is still riding forth because he has yet others to save, does he not, as he gathers his bride. But when we say conquering and to conquer, we don't mean simply to take his enemies and to cast them down into utter defeat, though that is accomplished too. But he goes forth to conquer not only in his wrath, he goes forth to conquer in his love. You and I are numbered amongst those whom he has conquered. Yeah, by the power of his spirit to transform a heart. But when he transforms our heart, suddenly we see something we have not seen before. How lovely and attractive this Lord Jesus, this great bridegroom of the church is. He awakens it in our hearts by his spirit and the gospel, doesn't he? And that's what this passage is about. And that's what we want to focus on as well. He ascends up on high, of course, exactly, that he may have the right to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his own. And the disciples thought it would be better that he remained on earth. And he said, no, your greatest need for me is not my physical presence on earth. That's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is for my Holy Spirit with my life so that you may bear witness to me and then be used by me even in the gathering of the church before I come again. But with that in mind, we want to turn to this 
passage, it's all under the theme, homage to the royal bridegroom. The first place, the attractiveness of this victorious bridegroom, and on this first point is going to be the great majority of the sermon with various subsidiary points, which you should be able to follow easily, and then concluding with the calling of the redeemed and chosen bride, and we are going to be rather brief on that, as it's embodied by the second part of the psalm, only a few minutes, if you will, that especially want to focus on the attractiveness of the royal bridegroom, who as he is described in this psalm, is also the victorious bridegroom. This is a wedding psalm. And a wedding psalm that has to do with a royal wedding. A king has commissioned a court poet, or if you will, court musician to compose a song for the crown prince who is going to be married to this chosen bride. Who the king is, we don't know exactly, but quite likely this king was David. This is not a psalm composed by David, but probably commissioned by David. And he had in view the marriage of one of his sons, and most likely that son would have been Solomon, because, of course, Solomon is the one who would become the king who would succeed him. And Solomon would certainly have been an appropriate figure foreshadowing of the greater son of David who's coming, the Messiah, from a positive point of view, but also from a negative point of view, by which I mean by way of contrast. He foreshadows that greater son of David, the coming Messiah, from the point of view of his wisdom. Solomon was known by his, for his wisdom, how to apply things to life, how life was to be lived in such a way that one had the approval of God and received the blessings of God along that way. Well, who knows the mind of God and the ways of God better than the Son of God? And of course, Solomon was an architect, and the renovation of Jerusalem was under his direction, and he didn't just commission men to do that. You may be sure he was busy in the laying out the architectural structure of the city as he remodeled it, if you will, and ultimately of the temple itself, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And who is the temple of the living God? Who else but this greater son of David, by whom and for whom all things were made? Solomon foreshadowing in a faint way the coming of the greater son of David. But by way of contrast, too, how many wives did Solomon have? This catechism class, I'd ask one of the children sitting before me, and I have an idea that many of them would be able to tell me how many wives this Solomon had. 300. And then you could add some concubines to that. He was not a one-bride man, was he, in contrast to the coming of his elder brother, Christ Jesus, the greater son of David. Because thanks be to God, you and I know that this son of man is a one bride son of man, faithful unto his bride, even if it were to cost him his life, which it did, by way of contrast to Solomon, the one concerning whom this psalm ultimately speaks, and for whose sake ultimately this psalm was composed. So the king commissions this psalmist to compose a psalm. It's a psalm, poetry, but notice in the heading, at least in my edition, 
in italics called a song of love. And for the most part, those headings not inspired are fairly accurate. And as to the chief musician, Pan Shoshenim, or the sons of Korah, and it's interesting that that word Shoshenim, they say, could be translated as lily. That was probably the name of the melody, the tune. The melody hasn't been kept for us. The words have. But when I read that it should be lily, I think of a song with which you must be familiar as well. He is the fairest of 10,000 for my soul, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. That's lifted, of course, from the Song of Solomon itself, a love song in, in many ways. So he composes this song, and he says, my heart is indicting a good matter. That is, this is a great honor that I should be selected to compose this wedding song. That is, the song for this upcoming royal wedding a great matter. It's a high honor that has been bestowed on me. And that's true, of course, because a royal wedding usually becomes the focus of a, of a nation, becomes a very elaborate affair. But far more than that, the importance of the wedding, the marriage of a crown prince to a bride, with the interest of the security of the nation in mind, with a view to what that marriage would produce, Lord willing, in the way of a crown prince, because as you know well from secular history, if a royal couple did not have a crown prince, once the king died, who was going to reign next was often up in the air, and there were ambitious men in the kingdom, and dukes and princes, or I should say dukes and generals, and you would have civil war, and everything was unsettled and danger to families and mothers' sons. So a crown prince coming from the wedding would assure the kingdom of a time of security in the future and of a relative peace. So indicting a good matter. Plus, I think you could say that the one who compose, composes this psalm knew who the crown prince was and had a deep affection for that crown prince, probably a young man who had a good personality and was not condescending, condescending to the servants of his father, but knew them by name. And so with a joy in his heart, this psalmist sits down to compose a song worthy of that great occasion. And being a man of faith, he reflects and he prays, and the Holy Spirit comes as the wind and plays along the heartstrings of his heart, and his tongue, as he says, becomes the pen of a ready writer. Quite likely, before he even writes, he sings. The Holy Spirit moves him to, to sing, and then maybe he would pause after singing a stanza or two and write down what he had sung. My pen is the my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And so you have, in the end, this psalm that is composed for that royal wedding, that occasion. But whatever might have been the exact earthly occasion, royal wedding, the Holy Spirit has something deeper in mind than simply an earthly occasion and a royal wedding of a young man and a bride, doesn't he? He has in mind this as that which is messianic, prophetic, looking forward to the greater son of David, who is also labeled here as the son of God, who is the one we know as the incarnate one. And he begins to, to write then and to get some feeling for the occasion, the psalm. Good to have some, some idea concerning wedding practices back then. And we are somewhat familiar with that from the parable, I think, of the ten virgins. 
five wise, five foolish, you know your gospel history, and you have that parable, and they were preparing themselves, that those bridesmaids were preparing the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. Now in the parable, of course, five were, were ready with their oil and could go to the banquet hall, and the others had neglected to do that. In the end, they have to go to the marketplace, which is closed, and they never end up in the banquet hall. But the point is, they were preparing the bride for the bridegroom to come with his groomsmen to collect her, as it were, and to escort her to the banquet hall and to have a feast with the guests who were already gathered there, some for many days perhaps, and then have the ceremony performed. And that's the perspective that the psalmist takes under the, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we, as we read, Ride forth, thou art fairer than the children of men. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. Ride forth. So the bridegroom with his groomsmen having prepared himself and themselves beautifully arrayed. They go through the streets of the city either walking and let us say here riding, riding upon horses and they go to collect the bride and to take her to the banquet hall where the guests are awaiting and then to have the ceremony performed. Notice, beloved, that this is a psalm that revolves about the bridegroom. Today, I don't know to what extent weddings revolve about the bridegroom. It's more about, like the secular song says, here comes the bride. And I'm not going to criticize that. That's how things are. But let's hope that the bridegroom is there for more than simply a prop to have an occasion for the bride to come down with her wedding dress and so on and to impress the, the guests and the, and the audience. Often it's simply led, left to the bride to organize the wedding and young men simply shake their head and say, yeah, that's good with me, yeah, that's, that's good with me too, and off it goes. But here, it's a psalm that revolves about the bridegroom. And when this bride prepares herself, she does not have the guests so much in mind and the audience she has the bridegroom in mind. She seeks to please him. She's preparing herself for his sake. Because she knows this is a bridegroom who will not take advantage of her, but who loves her deeply and intends to honor her and to elevate her and will say to all in sundry as you treat me, you will treat her. And if you do not treat her as you treat me, you will have me to answer to. Do you understand that, my citizens and my kingdom? This bridegroom, in many ways, is her security. And it revolves, you see, this psalm revolves about the bridegroom. And because it has to do ultimately with Christ Jesus, that's absolutely appropriate, isn't it? Because there would, apart from Christ Jesus, there would have been no wedding. There would have been an engagement called off. Because the faithfulness, the faithfulness in this marriage was not the bride. He doesn't take to himself a virgin. He takes to himself one who has fallen. And one is reminded, you know, of Joseph with Mary when he fought. She had been unfaithful and was then going to put her away privately. And then the angel says, no, Joseph, she is a virgin yet. There is no other man who has touched her. She has not been unfaithful to you. What is in her womb has been worked by the Holy Spirit himself. Nonetheless... In this instance, the one whom this bridegroom takes to himself is a fallen woman. And yet he still loves her. And he is faithful to her. It's striking, you know, how the gospel record opens with the genealogies. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, same one referred to in Psalm 45. 
the son of David, who is the son of Abraham, so he's the line of the covenant with the promise. And then you get to verse 5 of the genealogy, and you read concerning a Solomon, not Solomon, Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Rahab was a what? She was a harlot. She was from the Gentiles, a fitting representative of ourselves, beloved, as we were by nature. And then it says here that Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, whether or not there's a generation or two missing is besides the point. You say Ruth was a virtuous woman, yeah, but she was born an idolatress. She was guilty of idolatry. That, those two women, beloved, represent the church, and yet they're in the genealogy of Christ. How do they appear in the genealogy of Christ? By the love of this same Christ Jesus who cleansed them and washes them and brings them unto himself into the church itself. Is it not so? Representing us, beloved. So, a psalm that, rep that revolves about the great bridegroom and properly so. And having this bride whom he has forgiven and washed and cleansed and restored, he rides forth, we read, with the sword upon his thigh, this most mighty one in thy glory and thy majesty. What we must understand is that when he rides forth triumphantly, he has already conquered. He rides forth to conquer. He rides forth for victories. But when he rides forth, he has already secured two significant victories. I'm talking about, of course, Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus rides forth in the New Testament age, opens the first seal of history, and goes forth upon his white horse, the gospel, he has already accomplished two significant victories over two great enemies, the first having to do with death itself. Don't forget, he had given himself to death for the hand of this bride given to him. And what's striking is that his victory over death was already revealed, expressed while he's in the grave. He gives his body to the grave to indicate that he has indeed suffered our death for us. And it's a striking, striking thing is that in Acts 13, you read concerning this as Paul there is preaching the gospel to some Gentiles, and he makes reference even to some psalms. And he speaks, this is Gentiles and, and, and Jews together, he speaks of the second psalm in verse 33 of, of Acts 13. Jesus, the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And then he, re, re, he uh, quotes another, another psalm in verse 34. And then he gets to verse 35. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, and now he quotes from Psalm 16, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's the body in the grave. For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God fell on sleep, died, was laid unto his father and saw corruption. His body wasted away. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. That's Christ Jesus. It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he gives up the ghost and they put his body in the sepulcher on Friday evening. And the realm of hell, beloved, watches to see what they have accomplished by their seeming victory over him. And by Saturday, beloved, the alarm bells are going off in the corridors of hell. Something is amiss. We may have made a serious miscalculation. His body is not rotting away. The blood cells are not decaying. The body in flesh is not starting. There is no stink. His body remains as fresh as it were 
as when it was put into the grave. The power of death are like the lions before Daniel in the lion's den and cannot touch that body. Who has the victory here? And come Sunday morning, beloved, he tears the bars away and proves the miscalculation, the foolishness of Satan and his host. Death not to defeat, but death unto victory over death itself. As our children know, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, he arises from the dead. And now death becomes his servant concerning his bride as he saves us one by one. And then even through death gathers our souls into heaven. That's the first enemy he has already conquered as the gospel goes forth into the New Testament age and he begins to collect his bride from the nations of the earth. But there is another great victory, and that has to do, beloved, with the victory over Satan himself and the display of that victory. He arises from the dead, but when he arises from the dead, he is not yet glorified. He has a new body with great powers, but he's not yet glorified. He remains in some realm between heaven and earth and appears to his disciples a number of times. And then 40 days after the resurrection, he ascends up on high and he vanishes from one realm and enters the other realm. And worthy is the lamb goes up and now he is glorified and he ascends to the right hand of God. And then there are 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost. What transpired in heaven in those 10 days? We are told, beloved, what transpires in heaven in the 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost. Revelation chapter 12. There's this woman with a child. That's the Old Testament church. She's to be delivered. There's the great red dragon and then she brings forth her man-child, verse 5 of Revelation chapter 12, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There's his power. And her child was caught up into God and to his throne. There's the ascension. The woman flees into the wilderness and given a place. And then verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with and. The dragon and his angels prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. He's cast out, who deceiveth the whole world. And you hear a loud voice in verse 10 saying, Now is come salvation, the fullness of salvation. Now heaven is perfect. To this point, heaven was not perfect. Those who were in heaven were perfect. But it was not perfect. Because... Accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before our God day and night, while they were in heaven. Samson, what he's doing, what is he doing here? Who served his sentence? That adulterer. What's David the murderer doing here? And that adulterer. And Noah the drunkard, what's he doing here? Who served their sentences? And the list goes on, Rahab, with all her adulteries and fornications. What right do they have to be here? Art thou righteous, God? I thought thou was righteous. You are not righteous. He accuses even God, you know, in his boldness, and God suffers it because he's going to magnify our great bridegroom who, on the basis of his blood, may drive Satan from heaven <coughs> itself. And as the great general, captain of the host, he uses Michael to do so. So... There's victory, beloved, even over Satan himself that is displayed prior to his going into the New Testament age, if you will, into the nations to gather his church and his people. And having conquered then those two great enemies and displayed his power over them, he goes forth now to conquer his own people, soul by soul, by the wonder of his word and spirit, in his great love. And as he does so, and he conquers the hearts of his people, those chosen to him as his, his bride, eyes are opened. And those who were once his enemies and despised and hated him, you know, like a certain Saul of Tarsus, suddenly see this Jesus in a whole 
new light. This is the Lord's son. This is God's son. And he is a beauty to behold. He is altogether attractive to me. Now says Paul, Lord, what wilt thou hast me do? And the Lord says, I have a great purpose for you, Saul, Paul, whose name becomes Paul. And then, of course, the rest is history. But so he conquers us as well, you see. And we rejoice, beloved. We rejoice to see this Christ in his loveliness and in his beauty. Wherein does his loveliness and, and, and beauty lie? That becomes the question. And it does not have to do with his good looks. We live in a day and age in which everything has to do with shape and form and looks. And that's how they advertise and that's how they sell, whether or not you measure up to this standard of looks and shape and form and so on. And there are some who may have an excellent certain poise and looks and shape and form. And maybe such a young man turns the eyes of a young lady, my, to be married to someone with that kind of looks and charm and shape and form, as though that's the wherewithal of love. Think so? I'll give you the name of a certain son of David who had good looks. Ever hear of Absalom? He had charm. He was a sight to behold. He thought so too. He admired himself with his wonderful locks of hair. And he stole the heart of a whole nation, beloved, from under his father's throne. And he was a narcissist. He served himself. He's numbered with those, you know, who can be so charming in public before the eyes of men. And it seems everything is so wonderful. And then the door is closed. And then he treats his wife in a demeaning and a belittling fashion. Nothing ever quite meets up to his standard. And he beats her down in his own way. And meantime, he has eyes for others as well, whom he still desires to charm. So much for love based on looks. Beloved, Christ had character. That's the charm. That's the beauty. That's the attractiveness. And his charm, or if you will, his beauty and attractiveness, is described in verse 4 because of truth, meekness, and righteousness. That describes his character. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. Truth, because he's a man of his word. What he says, I love you, he means I love you. And what he says in public, he shows in private as well, a love. And in such a, such a way to keep his vow, even if it means death for him, as we understand. That's the Christ, this bridegroom of truth. You may, you may depend upon, because you may trust him, he's a man of his word. Not only in public, for the hearing of others, but in private as well. And then you can add to that the matter of meekness. And you may say, well, where does meekness enter into the majesty of this king, this Christ Jesus? Meekness has to do with a willingness to serve. He's the royal majesty, beloved. He's the transcendent son of God. And yet what does he do in the upper room? He gets on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples as Lord of all and reminds us that I have done unto you, you now must do one to another. I have served you. I will serve you even unto death. That's this wonderful bridegroom, you see, in his meekness. And, and that meekness has to do with a certain long suffering. He, is not, what shall I say, easily offended. And then if there are words that are spoken improperly, he still is one who will forgive. That's this Christ Jesus in his 
meekness. He is the shepherd king, remember. He's the king, but as a shepherd king. And then you can add to that that matter of righteousness, and one does not have the time to go into that whole matter of righteousness, but just consider the importance of righteousness when it comes to a king, that he is one who does what is right and true. He's a king of his word. But he is not one who says, well, this one has status, and so I'll favor this one, and this one can get away with that corruption and that corruption. You know, as in politics today, there's one set of laws for those who have status and contribute to my political party, and the others have no status, and let the criminals go free, and we will uh, punish punish those who are a little used to us from a political point. Of you. That's not righteousness, but this king is righteousness. He has no regard for status. He will also take care of the poor and the helpless and the, and the needy. He loves them. He walks in that upright way ruled by God's law, which is no respecter of persons. God be thanked. So this bridegroom characterized by truth and meekness unto service, if you will, willing to be of service to us in his greatness and speaking uprightly and treating us in the way of a righteousness and even granting to us in the end of course his own righteousness. So character first of all and then as well there has to do with words. Verse 2 says grace is poured into thy lips. A Lord who speaks gracious words, good words, You might say beautiful words, not demeaning and belittling, but encouraging words, even words in the end of salvation. But take my yoke upon you. I am meek and lowly of heart. And those who are cast down, I will minister to you. Those kinds of good words, beloved. Come unto me, all ye that are that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Gracious words for those who are overwhelmed by the trials of life. And even thy sins be forgiven thee. I forgive you. What can be more gracious than that, the one against whom we sin? And then he washes them away on the basis of his blood. So one of gracious words as well. And then finally... There is this, of course, he is the mighty one, and there has to do with military power here. Thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. People fall under thee. And so, to defend and preserve his own. This is the bridegroom, beloved. We need one who will defend and preserve us as we have great enemies. Who would take us away from him, take us into sin, and even destroy the witness of the church. But not when you have this great bridegroom who has made a vow to take care of his church, to preserve and to defend unto the very end. The power of this one in his military might, if you will, and in the end, brethren, an example to us as husbands and young men as well. To what extent do we measure up to this great bridegroom who loves us in the way of the treatment of our own spouses, do you suppose? We have to ask ourselves that. He's our example, is he not? In our character, in the way of truth, keeping our word, willing to be of service in every way we can, and in righteousness, governing the home by the word of God itself, and speaking good words to encourage and build up, and to do what we can to defend and preserve. In the end, of course, we can only do so much. And so in the end, we ourselves must rely upon this great bridegroom to use us as weak means to accomplish his goodwill. Men of prayer, then, to follow after him who is not only our Lord, but our example as well. And you may have a woman, a wife, who says, my husband is nothing like this. I don't see very, I see very little reflection to Christ in in my husband. It's a sad and difficult life to such a woman. Remember this psalm speaks. A wife, this psalm speaks, but you still have a bridegroom, Christ Jesus, who loves you and continues to speak good words to you and be faithful unto you 
and lead you through and defend you even to the very end. You are his own after all. This great bridegroom in his faithfulness and in his power to do what he has said he will do. So he is to be magnified, beloved. So we are to serve him, our calling briefly. Now you may say our calling is to pay homage. Yeah, but our homage better be more than words. You know, you can sing in the church choir and a lot of homage out of the mouth. But once you're out of the church choir, how do you treat others? How do we live? Once you be in the choir, you know, be living in a, a profane and ungodly life, out of sight, out of mind. Not simply a matter of words, beloved. Wonderful, praise him from the mouth, but it must be words that are compatible with practice, how we live. And how we live is defined here in Scripture when it says, forget thy known people and thy father's house first of all. Are you willing to forsake all to follow him? Huh? Are you willing? Doesn't mean necessarily we always have to forsake all, but if it comes down to us, a choice between Christ and whomever else, then it must be Christ. We sang Psalter number 125, and that's very accurate. O royal bride, give heed, and to my words attend. For Christ the king forsake the world and every former friend. Be willing to do that. When one marries, one must leave father's house, father and mother, and cleave to one's wife and cleave to one's husband. A willingness even to forsake a family if that family wants precious little to do with Christ and your faith. Think of the Jews, beloved, in the early New Testament church who left behind their Jewish families and they were called traitors. You turn on the faith of our fathers. You go after this Jesus whom you call the Messiah. Where in the scripture is any reference to this Jesus as the Son of God? You magnify him beyond words. And the apostle, if you recall, in Hebrews chapter 1, says you want your Jewish parents to challenge you with respect to this Jesus as, those no, as if there's no place in the scriptures that would say he's to be the incarnate son of God. Remind them they don't even know their own psalms. Because there's a certain psalm called Psalm 45, which in verse 6 says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. And that's referring to the crowned prince, if you please. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. So they have given answer to their Jewish relatives who are going to disown them for turning to the Christian faith. And for his sake, who is the promised Messiah, whom you, father and mother, are turning your back on, I will follow faithfully, because he is the one foretold in the scriptures, and count the cost, and don't think, beloved, the bridegroom doesn't see that, and he approves of that for his sake. So there is the willingness to forsake all for the sake of this great bridegroom, and then, as well, it says, worship him, that means to submit the knee to him, and that simply means Listen to him. Take him at his word. And so his word rules. One is married, and the words of a husband in a home in non-essential matters is to be the final word. But when it comes to essential words, one says, I may have your last name. I may be a smith. I may be a vendor waker, whatever. But ultimately, I'm a Christian. That's my last name. When all is said and done, and it becomes a decision between your words and his word, his word of my great bridegroom. That's going to be the final word and the word that I obey and rules me. So worship, submit to his word. And finally, there is this as well that one not only submits to him and not only Take, takes him at his, his word, but as one as well, one is willing to bring him 
his homage and his, his praise, his, the honor that is due to his, his name. One lives in hope, we may say, and that hope turns our eyes to heaven, and we say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and for the, and for the return of Christ I await, and I will not bring shame to his name as I wait. We live in expectation, beloved, of a coming glory. This world is not my home, and we make that witness to the world. In conclusion, I want to remind you what a glory that's going to be in the end. The object of our hope, this Jerusalem, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, which represents the church herself. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first were passed away, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, representing the church, of course, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. Here is the words of the covenant. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. Former things are passed away. Him that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The new Jerusalem, beloved. You're going to be there? Are you looking for it? Are you living in that hope, beloved, as your Lord Christ, as your great bridegroom, is faithful to him? By grace, be faith, is faithful to you. By grace, be faithful to him. Because he that overcometh shall inherit all things. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we give thee thanks for thy word, the gospel, the heart of which is Christ Jesus, who is our great bridegroom. Thou hast entrusted us to his care. May we give ourselves to his care and follow him and learn to reflect him as he hath so loved us. In Jesus' name.